Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Canadians narrowly avoid new travel restrictions, some courage from a Conservative MP, and Shelley Glover on her legal challenge against the Manitoba PC leadership race. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, Thursday, December 16th, 2021. Just nine days away from Christmas. I know you are all so excited. I can hear it, or at least I can hear you throwing chairs through the window as you realize all the stuff you have to get done in nine days. And to make matters worse, you don't even really have nine days to do it because you can't get anything done on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. So you've really just got a week. And I realize as I'm saying that I may be motivating you to just stop listening to the show and run out to the mall. So uh, you can just plug your earphones in, listen on the podcast and uh, enjoy as you Christmas shop. Uh, You can only listen to All I Want for Christmas is You so many times before you want the dulcet tones of the Andrew Lawton show, or at least so I choose to believe. Uh, Maybe I, uh, just depending on how the show goes and how many eggnogs I have, maybe I should do. All I want for Christmas is you. That'll that'll surely boost the numbers, not. In any case, going to be talking later on in the program with Shelly Glover, the runner-up in the Manitoba PC leadership race, but who has taken a claim to court that suggests she was actually the winner of the race. We'll talk about that court challenge with her later on. But I want to first talk about the the announcement that wasn't. I mean, remember T.S. Eliot's The World Ends with a uh, whimper, not a bang? That This was kind of like the whimper of press conferences. And I'm not dissatisfied with that because I was expecting the federal government this week would come out with a wave of travel restrictions. Brian Lilly had a report from government sources talking about how the Trudeau government was considering putting in quarantine again, even for fully vaccinated travelers, so that if you leave the country and come back, you've got to do the whole two-week quarantine thing. We had reports that the government was considering putting a ban on non-essential travel again which could conceivably force the United States or encourage the United States to reimpose its ban on Canadians traveling for non-essential reasons. So all of these things were cooking around. And it sounds like if I piece together all of these different stories that are all quoting their own unnamed sources, like the Trudeau government was prepared to go there and then ultimately decided not to, in part because of pushback from premiers. Trudeau on Tuesday night had a call that was apparently quite uh, vibrant, one might say, with the premiers of the various provinces, and it sounds like there was a lot of pushback from plunging Canada right back into March 2020 travel restrictions. So all of this is to say what the government kind of came out with was just like a you better not travel that with the finger you have to do it with the finger otherwise it's it's not really an admonition so they've come out with an advisory against non-essential travel. Now, this is something that can be summarily ignored. The government says it's going to watch things for the next four weeks, so there's not going to be like a a winter travel ban yet. Although, believe me when I say I am not in the least holding my breath that, that such a thing won't be imposed later on. So why this is worth noting here is that I'm going away. I'm literally leaving the country on the weekend. And no matter what the government, I mean, I I don't think any restriction would have stopped me from doing it. I think even with quarantine, I would have said, you know what, I'm going. And when I came back, I would have just done what I wanted. But I can confess to that now that there isn't the quarantine or anything. But uh, but I, I like nothing would have stopped because at this point, the pandemic is over. 
Like the pandemic is absolutely over. I've had it with the Omicron fear mongering that just does not align with the data that we are seeing about Omicron and what it's doing. I'm done with all these restrictions that are yo-yoing. I'm done with all of these public health advisors that model just the most terrifying scenarios that never come to pass, yet still get to continually define the direction that we take in our pandemic response. And I think most Canadians are in the same boat. I've heard, and this is not political. It used to be just like the fire-breathing libertarian types like me that were done with this. Now everyone is. I'm hearing from people left, right, apolitical, political, doesn't matter. People that are saying, yeah, I'm done with this. Uh, especially, especially when it comes to kids in schools. So just starting with universities for a moment, a number of schools in Ontario like Queens and Western, uh, University of Victoria out in BC, other institutions have abandoned their in-person exams. And they've said, okay, we're just going to do online exams at the drop of a hat. They flip over. Some schools are already going further. York University in Toronto has said that it's going to return to online classes for at least the first few weeks of January. So you already have some universities that are talking about just writing off the return to in-person classes, which I think is supposed to happen like the first week of January. There's not a, a huge delay there. And, and now you've got in Ontario as well, school boards that are telling students, bring home all of your stuff, like elementary and secondary schools, bring home all your stuff for Christmas because you might not be coming back. This is the kind of thing that should make people very nervous because what all of these people are doing is poising themselves for a return to March 2020. We have the Omicron variant. They're all pretending this is new. They're all pretending that we are exactly where we were nearly two years ago, looking at footage out of Wuhan and being like, oh, well, we don't know what we're dealing with. So we got to shut down the border. We've got to throw in a quarantine. We've got to shut down schools. We got to shut down offices. And, and it just doesn't match with the facts. It just does not match with the facts. But there are people that are just so high on lockdown that don't want to reopen. They don't want to get back to normal. They don't want life to go back to the old normal because they have a lot more purpose. Again, all of these like lockdown happy science table directors that are driving public policy, that are telling people we need travel restrictions and lockdowns and closed schools and all of that. All of these people have more purpose during the pandemic than they've ever had in their life. And they're merchants of doom. That's what they are. They're merchants of doom. And that's working for them because they're selling what a lot of people in the media and in government are buying. They're buying the doom. There's a good market for Doom. You know what? I wish I bought stocks in Doom because Doom is about the best asset you can have right now in your portfolio because it just keeps coming and coming and coming. So these merchants of Doom, prophets of Doom too, but I, I think merchants uh, kind of effectively characterizes it because they are profiting off of it in fame and notoriety and money. What they're doing is keeping the rest of us indefinitely locked down for their own purpose. And a lot of people, I, I've said, have kind of internalized this. They've developed Stockholm Syndrome. They enjoy it. They look to these people and say, oh, dear leaders, are you going to give us more lockdown? I don't want the freedom. I want the vaccine passport. I want the shutdown. I want the restrictions. But that's even that is, I, I'm slightly hopeful. I say slightly, starting to change. People seem to be resisting this now a lot more than they were even a few weeks ago. And to be honest, I, I think the linchpin of all of this is the effect on kids in schools. 
Because parents are, I mean, adults can withstand a lot. It will withstand a lot. Same as vaccine mandates. A lot of adults that don't want to get the COVID vaccines themselves will get it if it means that that's what they have to do to go to a restaurant or to do whatever. But the line in the sand is kids. They're not getting their kids vaccinated. Adults are very protective of their children. So when there's talk about kids not being able to go back to school, kids being robbed of yet another school year, a lot of parents are saying, no, this is the last straw. I'm just not going along with this. I'm not playing ball. And that's going to be something that's very important to watch. But I I maintain that people are finally starting to push back. Again, not hugely. We're not talking about mass protests of normal apolitical people, although we have seen some of that. I'm talking about just people that are, are, are kind of just on the cusp. They're on the cusp. And if government comes out with another very draconian measure, like the federal travel restrictions could have been, and it sounds like nearly were, that would, I suspect at this point, be enough to put people over the edge. I think if Canadian families are robbed of another Christmas, that's going to push a lot of people over the edge. I think if a lot of students are robbed of the ability to go back to school in January, that is going to push a lot of people over the edge. And it's just teetering. It's just teetering. It's almost there. It's not there entirely. And the moment could pass. The moment could pass. But right now, I think governing officials have to be very, very careful about how they navigate the next few weeks, given where people are right now. And and this is something, and again, it's entirely anecdotal. I don't have data to back this up. I'm just talking about this based on what I've seen and heard from people in my orbits and my circles. And do email me, andrew at andrewlawton.ca. I'm curious if the same thing is something that you're witnessing in your own circles. Do you find that people that previously were okay with this or were okay to go along with it at least are finally feeling like they've had enough? Or perhaps am I in a a little bit of an echo chamber? I don't know. I'm not making this claim in a a way that I would put, you know, a 10,000 bucks on it and say I'm I'm right. It's just something I'm noticing and I'm slightly hopeful about. But I'm qualifying that by by putting the emphasis on the slightly. One thing I I will say on this too, because again, the, the federal government's position right now is just, you better not travel if it's not essential. But I mean, ultimately you get to decide for yourself. Like I may think of Hawaii, I'm not going to Hawaii. Actually, I should go to Hawaii, but that's not essential to a lot of people. But if I decide I want to go, you better believe it's going to be essential if the government is saying that uh, all non-essential travel should be ceased. But what is going to happen here is the government is going to find that people are not going to cancel their vacations based on just the finger wagging, you better not go anywhere. So that is potentially going to cause them to ramp things up. But again, if the government is looking at a political climate that's shifting, that may may cause them to take a step back. I don't have a lot of hope on this, but something to watch. Now, interestingly enough, I got to give credit where it's due here because I found that the conservatives have just been completely and utterly silent on a lot of the big issues, the issues that really matter, like vaccine mandates, like vaccine passports, like travel restrictions. They've They've been kind of just opposing for the sake of opposing, and in some cases, not even. I mean, Aaron O'Toole has uh, was taking pride in the fact that his view on Bill Bill 21, which is the uh, horrifically anti-religious freedom bill in Quebec, his position is the same as the prime minister's. That was his defense. Yeah, yeah, I think the same as Trudeau. I'm not taking a stand for religious liberty on this because, again, Quebec can do no wrong in the eyes of the political class. 
And I talked about uh, earlier on in the show, I think it was uh, about three, four weeks back, that all of the conservatives that were in a position to speak out against vaccine mandates were conveniently sidelined. You may remember I talked about the sheer volume of MPs in the Conservative caucus who were given shadow cabinet roles, deputy shadow cabinet roles, leadership positions, and it was just a, a small subset a small subset who were not, I think it was about a third, that were denied some portfolio. And of those, of the unaligned, the unaffiliated, one of them gave a very passionate defense of individual choice, of people that are losing their jobs because of vaccine mandates. That was Jeremy Patzer, a backbench conservative P MP. And you can, see him, you can see in the video I'm about to show you, they shove him like to the way, way, way back. Like he's right up against the wall. I don't even think he can lean back in his chair without hitting the wall. That's how little the conservatives want to hear what this guy has to say. But he took a stand. He took a stand in a statement given in the House of Commons. Take a look. Mr. Speaker, I rise in the House today on behalf of thousands of workers across Canada, from members of our military, to first responders, nurses, to educators, to janitorial staff who have or are facing the loss of their jobs as a result of vaccine mandates. These are our neighbours, our colleagues, our fellow citizens, many who have sacrificed and given so much to build up our country, and many who have served us throughout the worst of this pandemic. Yet now in the blink of an eye, these same individuals that we once praised as heroes are being treated as second-class citizens for a decision that every Canadian should have the freedom to make for themselves. And to add insult to injury, this government is denying them EI, money that they have long contributed to and is rightfully theirs. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, it's a disgrace to see how this Liberal government is intent on stripping Canadians of their dignity and sending a rift of division from coast to coast. To all the Canadians who have lost their jobs and to all the constituents who have written out, I hear you and I will continue to stand for you and for this country, the true North, strong and free. The Honourable Member for Newmarket, Aurora. And I don't know if you noted, Jeremy Patzer got two standing ovations from the MPs on either side of him. Also on the no portfolio list that I've put together of Conservative MPs, one of them, Chris Workington, who has been uh, fairly vocal in speaking up against the leadership issues in the Conservative caucus. But he took a stand. And you know what? Good on Jeremy Patzer. I don't know how long he's going to be kicking around in the Conservative caucus. If he starts talking about things like freedom and civil liberties, he might not have a place in the Conservative caucus at this point. I, I certainly hope I'm wrong about that, but good on him for taking a stand. Again, all of the people that we were uh, supposed to bang our pots and pans and clang our household implements to support, all of a sudden they are the people we're supposed to shove out to the curb if they don't want to get vaccinated against COVID for whatever reason. It doesn't matter what that reason is. We just do not allow people to make their own choices now. A lot of good feedback to my interview earlier this week with Julie Panessi about that very idea. She said, no, I'm not anti-vax. I'm anti-vaccine mandate. And we have a political climate and culture that insists on conflating those two. So when there is the rare voice in a political party speaking up against that narrative, I think they deserve to be commended. So uh, well done, Jeremy Patzer. We've got to take a break here. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Going to take a little bit of a jaunt one province west of my current locale to Manitoba. Interestingly enough, the maybe it's not interesting to you, but it's interesting to me. Barely, actually. I don't know why I'm sharing it, but now I have to because I've started down this road. Manitoba is the only province in Confederation I've not visited. Now, I haven't done two of the three territories. I've not done Nunavut or Northwest Territories, but I've been to every single province except Manitoba. And one of my friends said, on principle, I should just avoid going to Manitoba and just like leave that as like the hole in central Canada that I've never been to. I, I don't know. I mean, I, if I am going to go to Manitoba, I don't want it to be right now, but I'll happily talk to someone from Manitoba. The PC party of Manitoba had a leadership race culminating on October 30th, at which Heather Stephenson, a, a longtime MLA, was crowned not just the leader of the PCs, but also the premier of Manitoba, replacing Brian Powell. Alistair, who had uh, stepped down earlier. The race was fraught with allegations of irregularities. You had members not receiving their ballots by mail. You had discrepancies about the count. You had all of these things that ultimately led to Shelley Glover, who was the runner-up by a very small margin, saying that she was basically robbed out of a victory that was hers. She brought a claim to court that was heard by a judge last week with a decision expected any day now. Shelley Glover, the former Conservative Member of Parliament and former PC leadership candidate, joins me now. Shelley, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for calling. So I want to go back to the basics here. Obviously, when you are seeking the leadership of a governing party, the stakes are a lot higher than they are in normal leadership races because you aren't just going to the uh, top of the party, but you're going to uh, directly into the premier seat if you win. Why did you want to get in this race in the first place? Okay, well, um, Andrew, the the race originally um, started off with an appearance as if some people in the party uh, were wanting to keep everyone out. Okay, so um, I got a phone call from uh, one of the uh, people who was actually involved in um, that ploy. And he told me that this plan had been underway for some time. Um, of course, I was shocked and thought, you know, this could never happen in my party. Um, but unfortunately, uh, he suggested I watch for a, um, an announcement by one of the MLAs, and it would include mostly all of the other MLAs um, endorsing that person. So, of course, uh, I did see that happen, and um, I did see the rules come out shortly thereafter, which were orchestrated and manipulated by the MLAs um, and Executive Council. Uh, so that they increased the entry fee uh, to 25,000 and only 5,000 refundable and shortened the race to a 60 day race from what's normally a six month race. Um, and that was an attempt, an obvious attempt to keep everybody out of the race. And I don't believe in that. I believe our party needed a race. Uh, I believe we were very much in need of new members, new money, uh, excitement for the party because we were really down in the polls given um, some of the things that uh, Manitobans uh, disliked about our former uh, Premier Brian Pallister. So this was an opportunity in my mind to get the party back to a place where we were judged uh, in a new way. And um, unfortunately, uh, 
uh, a coronation was underway and uh, I decided to run with many others that I had encouraged to run um, in an effort to stop the coronation and make sure that our party benefited from the advantages of having this race. And then we fast forward to the day the results were announced on October 30th, so just about six weeks ago. And out of 16,000 some odd ballots cast, the official tally had MLA Heather Stephenson, now the Premier of Manitoba, with a lead above you by by 363 votes. Now, I want to bring us up to speed here because you obviously were, uh, were in court. Your lawyer was arguing that there were a number of irregularities, that the count basically was not valid. So just in the interest of clarity, your position is that you should be the premier right now, correct? Well, of course, I uh, was not sworn in as premier, but I believe I was the premier designate. I believe I won that election. Um, and it's based on a number of things. Um, and, and just remember that, you know, the, 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 the ploy to keep everyone out of this race uh, continued right through to the end. Um, in fact, uh, I... I was sitting there listening to the results, knowing that my magic number, which we all know is uh, however many ballots were to be counted, uh, half of that plus one is the magic number that any candidate looks at uh, before hearing the results because um, you, you know what number uh, you need to win in, in doing that math. So my magic number um, was in fact uh, 8,023. And so um, when they announced 8,042, I thought I had won. Um, and then all of a sudden they announced Heather Stephenson as having 8,405 and I, I, I couldn't understand where these extra 500 votes came from. So that's why we ended up in court. Um, not only that, I mean, ballots didn't get out to people, mainly my uh, voters. Um, there were a number of irregularities, including taking the ballot boxes out of the room unsealed, even though our, our, our uh, scrutineers demanded that they be sealed um, and, you know, continuity wasn't maintained because our scrutineers weren't allowed to follow the ballots out of the room. Um, it was just, it, it was a mess. Um, so I'm waiting for a court decision on Friday and hopefully uh, we will see this fixed. Now, your magic number, so you, you reached this by 50% plus one of, of the ballots cast, presumably. How did you get that ballot cast ballots cast number? Because that seems to be a, a key a discrepancy here between your case and the PC party's case, how many ballots were actually cast and the source of that number. Well, you know, we received at, it was 12.27 a.m., the day of the vote, so October 30th, we received the final voting list. And that's what it was called, the final voting list um, from uh, the PC party, from Stu Charles. When you look at that final list, 16,045 is the number of voters who cast ballots. And so, and then at, 11, uh, at 1 54 a.m., same day, we even got a breakdown uh, from a PC party uh, member, that's Jason Hamlin, uh, a breakdown of every day that our scrutineers had attended to um, uh, Scarrow and Donald, which is uh, our, our, the party's accounting firm for over 20 years. Um, and uh, that, that seemed to suggest as well that we were nowhere near 
that number that was presented as the final results the night of the counting. And I can tell you, um, my co-campaign manager, uh, Lawrence Toad, had been at every one of those uh, meetings to verify votes, et cetera, except for two. And Dale Smeltz from my team was there those two days. And our numbers all added up very similarly to uh, Jason Hamlin. So uh, we actually had numbers all over the place. I mean, we had Jason Hamlin's. We had uh, what the party said was the number. Um, we had uh, the final voting list number. We had the results in the room from our lead scrutineer who had gone to every table and added all of those up. Uh, that was another number. And uh, even in the room, even Heather's own scrutineers added up all the numbers from the, the ballots that had been uh, counted because we had tally sheets at every table. And they were upset because they realized that she had lost. So I was actually the winner in that room for two hours while they locked them in there. So this is highly unusual and irregular. And this is why it led to this court case that we are now waiting for a decision on. And now the party's defense of the discrepancy on the membership list w was basically incompetence. They just said, oh, no, we we released a list that w was full of mistakes here. Now, I mean, generally speaking, when you have something like this, you're, you're talking about malice or, or incompetence. You don't buy that it was just the latter in this case. I don't buy it. And here's why, Andrew. So from day one, we uh, tried to follow every rule. You know, I'm a law and order person, having uh, served 28 years with the Winnipeg Police Service. Mm -hmm. um, that is my character. I, I, I stand up for injustice. I call out people who are not following the rules. And I can tell you, we tried to follow every rule, although um, my opposing, uh, uh, my, my, my opposition didn't follow all the rules. So, you know, it, it was really important to me that we cross our T's and dot our I's. And when it comes to all of the irregularities, all these mistakes that you're talking about, uh, this um, claim that it was incompetency and uh, there was no malice, well, I called for an extension a couple of weeks before the count happened. And every single person that they talked to from the PC party, from the MLAs, and even Premier Gertzen at the time. They all said, well, the party has said they're going to get their uh, ducks in a row and it's going to be a fair and, and um, a, a fit race. They will have everything uh, tightened up by the time the count happens. Well, I knew that was impossible because we had thousands of people in the rural communities who had come to the city two or three times uh, trying to get ballots. Uh, they were calling constantly, weren't getting answers. So if this was not malice, why on earth did they not postpone and get an extension so that all members' rights were observed? Um, had they done that, we wouldn't be in court today. Now, do you think that uh, Heather Stephenson was involved in the behavior that you're alleging here? Or do you think she was simply the beneficiary of it? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and at this point, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who is involved in it. We need to fix it. And this is all about democracy. It's not about blame. It's about democracy and making sure that all of our members have a right to vote which was not afforded to thousands of them. 
it's about making sure that when we say to members and to Manitobans, because this was the most important election that our party ha has ever run. In 60 years, we've never seen this, right? So this was the most important election that we were ever to run. And it was such a failure, whether it be incompetence or other, um, that we needed to make sure that members and Manitobans had faith in the process and of course, faith in the result, which we have no faith in either, which is why I'm in court now. And so democracy is what I'm defending. I don't care who is involved, but this was not a fair race. It was not an accountable race. Uh, it did not follow the standards that Elections Manitoba sets for all elections. Now, the party will say, well, the leadership election doesn't have to follow those rules. Well, it is, in fact, uh, the standard, even indicated in our Constitution, that we should be complying with. So when the party says, well, there was no rule to, 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 to say that the boxes had to be sealed when they left. There was no rule uh, that said all members have to get a vote. There's no rule um, that says this and that. Every irregularity that we presented in court, um, the party just dismissed with, well, you know, we didn't have rules about that. Well, then what were the rules? And in fact, they, they, they tried to dismiss part of the rules that went to my campaign manager um, that, that touched on how the count would be, would be done. And to hear their lawyer in court say, oh, that first sheet looks like it was just a letter that was to go to someone. Obviously it was not rules. And, and the, the face sheet that he was talking about uh, had the form A that we uh, use, which has every member's name, address, uh, postal code on it and their code so that we can match them up to indicate that they have in fact voted. So to try to dismiss that as if it's a letter going to some arbitrary person, uh, that's inexcusable, inexcusable. That is, that is, a, that is blatantly false what he's, he was suggesting um, and, and, and shameful actually, because uh, to try to make out the rules to be something completely out of line and and not even related to the election is was mind-boggling so um i do i do expect the judge to make a decision but uh sadly i don't think it's going to be the decision uh that many many members are thinking it's going to be no and and i know that any any battle like this in the courts is going to be an uphill battle for, for two reasons. Number one, we're talking about the premier of the province, which a, a judge is not going to want to single-handedly determine themselves. And also judges, generally speaking, ha have tried to avoid intervening in, in political party affairs. So in, in a lot of cases, there may be more of a, a public opinion fight afoot here. But but I have to ask about your motivations here moving forward, Shelley, because you know if you had the establishment stacked against you, you had all of the uh, MLAs that you would have been leading in caucus endorsing your, your opponent, Heather Stephenson. Why do you even want to be involved in a party that would treat you the way that you're saying you were treated? So once again, uh, I have stood up against injustice my entire career. Um, even in politics, I am seen as someone who 
maybe argumentative at times, and that's because I stand up for what's right. I, I believe that I am someone with the heart of a servant, um, and a public servant uh, is, is where I have remained in my career um, and, and then after my career. Uh, so I am standing up for all of our members who believe their rights were violated. Um, it wasn't about me. I didn't even go into this, as I said originally, Andrew, I didn't go into this thinking I was going to be the last woman standing uh, in a one-on-one -on -one race with Heather. I, I honestly believed um, that the other people that had said they were going to run uh, would outpace me and be uh, the last one standing. I had no intention in the beginning of doing anything but uh, fighting that coronation and making sure that there was a race. But after the rules, everyone else dropped out. And I just, it just motivated me more and empowered me to say, this is wrong. This is so wrong. This is not our party. These are not the values that our party has. And we need a race so that our party can be lifted out of the doldrums we were in, given the, the history that we, we, just, uh, we just finished uh, uh, having. So all I can say is, I love this party. I love the conservative philosophies, their policies. Um, I love that we fight for members' rights and those were all being trashed and, and discarded so that we would not have a race and would not have an election. So uh, it's not about, for me, it's not about how the party treated me or how this one campaign treated me. Um, I'm standing up for those thousands and thousands of conservatives who believe in conservative policies and values, and I'll always stand up for them. If the uh, the decision doesn't go your way, is this still a, a party you'll support in the next election? Well, we'll have to see um, if the party has repaired many of the things that were wrong. And I'll give you an example. I uh, started out and in this when uh, the rules came out and it took four days to get the package, um, the application package that the party said was available. Um, they said they were still working on it. So, and the application, the application package had many, many errors in it. For example, you had to sign a form that said, I will, uh, or I agree to all the policies of the PC party of Manitoba and so when I phoned to say, well, where's the book of policies that we used to have? Because I sat on the communications team some 25 years ago um, and got, they got back to me saying, oh, we don't have any policy book. So, so just cross that out and put, I've read all the rules of the leadership. I mean, it was, it was so poorly run from day one. It was obvious they had no intention of holding a race. They were just going to coronate someone. And uh, so they've got to repair a lot of things uh, in order for me to stand up and say, you are conservative, uh, you, are, you are following conservative values and following um, policies that I actually agree with. Without a policy book, it's hard to tell whether they're a conservative, a liberal, or an NDP. And that's not acceptable. It's unacceptable for a party not to have a policy book. Shelley Glover, thank you very much. You're very welcome. And you have a Merry Christmas, Andrew. Yes, yourself as well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now.
That was former Manitoba PC leadership candidate Shelley Glover. As she said at the beginning of the interview, she believes she is the premier designate, although not the premier of Alberta. That honor is officially bestowed on Heather Stephenson, though obviously we'll see what the judge has to say this week. And I, I'm glad Shelley has realistic expectations of this court. Do not, they want to just avoid political parties as much as they can because no, I mean, Whatever esteem you hold judges in, and in a lot of cases, it's very low for me, but they don't want to be seen as trying to just play kingmaker when it comes to the political process, especially internally in political parties. So uh, that's the challenge, but obviously we'll keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, we've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show today. We'll talk to you soon with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.